Amen. Amen. Um, you've probably seen a movie or a play or some kind of dramatization of the last 24 hours of Christ's life leading up to his crucifixion. Maybe on Easter time, there's lots of movies that are made that are on television. How many of you have seen at least some kind of dramatization of the last 24 hours? All right. So there are lots of them out there. And so I was thinking about that this, this week, studying chapter 22, because chapter 22 is where most of those dramatizations that we've seen uh, pick up. It is the final 24 hours of his life. And I was thinking, if I were to, to uh, you know, break it down into different scenes, if I were writing a screenplay of what I see in chapter 2, I, I come up with at least six scenes in the chapter. They're probably the same six scenes or roughly thereabouts that you've seen in different dramatizations. But I'm telling you this because we're not going to focus on all of the chapter today, but I want you to remember sort of the chronological events that are, that are going on right now, all right? So the first scene would be the betrayal of Jesus, where Judas, you know, finally goes off and, and, uh, and makes his deal to, to betray Jesus into the hands of his arresters. Uh, the second scene would be the Passover meal that Jesus has, the Last Supper with them, and the institution of that new covenant, the Last uh, of the Lord's Supper. The third scene would be the disciples' dispute then immediately after that uh, over which one of them was the greatest, that's the second time they've done that, by the way, in the Gospel of Luke, an unfortunate uh, reminder of just the frailty and sinfulness of human hearts. But that's the third scene. They dispute over who's the greatest. And then Jesus in the fourth scene would, goes out to the garden in Gethsemane and he prays to the Father. We'll be focusing on that one today. After that, we see Peter's denial of Jesus three times, right before and during the arrest and the beginning of Jesus' trial on the charge of blasphemy. So there's a lot of things that happen in chapter 22, right? The, the Last Supper happens, the denials of Jesus, the arrest. Uh, just, there's big events that are going on here. It's a pivotal section in Luke's narrative. But I want you to think a little bit more broadly. I mean, we've been studying the book of Luke for a while. There's a couple of things that happened in the past that we've seen already that, are, that have kind of pointed pointed forward to this coming time, and the coming time that they were pointing to also occur here in chapter 22. So for example, back in chapter 9, uh, we, we, we read that Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. Luke makes a turn there, right, as Jesus is ministering in Galilee, and then he says he, he, he set his face towards Jerusalem, and everything following that is him journeying towards a, a specific mission a specific point and that direction that he was traveling was he knew and that no one else knew at the time was directly towards his looming death by crucifixion so a lot of luke so far has been pointing us towards that moment jesus walking and, and even giving hints to his disciples that that's what he was coming to do to die and as we arrive here in chapter 22 the time has come for his mission to be fulfilled so he could die for the sins of the world. Again, this is, this is the last 24 hours of his life. We also read way back in chapter 4, remember that Satan took Jesus out into the wilderness and tried to tempt him? 
and those efforts to tempt Jesus into abandoning this mission ultimately failed there. But it says there at the end of that, of that passage that the devil withdrew and, quote, to wait until an opportune time. And in chapter 22, we see that that time has come also. The events of the next 24 hours in Jesus' story will be the culmination of a collaborative effort between Satan and sinful humanity to finally reject and kill the promised Messiah of God. That opportune time for the devil has come. Look down at chapter 22, and I will we'll open up the first six verses to sort of set the scene for that. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread draw near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. For they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Notice the similar words from chapter 4 where the devil awaited an opportune time. And here we see Judas seeking an opportunity. We see the collaboration of sinful humanity and Satan to reject the Messiah. Now this, of course, was carried out by Judas and the chief priests, but they're not the only ones to be held responsible. Their rejection of Christ is shared by all people who reject Jesus as the Son of God, as the King. The Apostle Peter would later preach to the crowds in Jerusalem several weeks after the resurrection of Christ. This is Acts chapter 2. And he said this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Of course, he's, a, he's laying the blame on, on all, right? In Acts chapter 4.11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And Luke has made it abundantly clear throughout our time in his gospel that there are only two kinds of people. We've talked about this over and again. Those who truly hear the gospel of the kingdom of God and those who don't. Those who truly believe and those who don't. Those who line up with the cornerstone or those who trip over him. Those who reject Jesus and those who will trust him as the saving king, the Messiah, and the Son of God. We're seeing in chapter 22 the culmination of all these things, and there's still this, this big question that Luke is, is asking us to consider. There's only two kinds of people. Which one are you? Two ways. Two kinds of people. In chapter 22, what I want to focus on this morning is that Luke also points us to two cups. 
two very different cups. And those cups will be, um, will be utilized, will be uh, drank out of by those two kinds of people. So let's look at the specific sections here of chapter 22. And here's the first point today. It's the cup of God's wrath. That's the first cup. The cup of God's wrath. Look at verse 39. Remember I told you about different scenes in the chapter. This would be the scene where he goes out to the garden of Gethsemane. He prays on the Mount of Olives. It says there, And he came out and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The part that I want to focus in on of that, sec, of that text is in verse 42, when Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup. What is this cup? That's what I want to focus on. Obviously, it's not a, a literal cup that he's talking about. Most of us are familiar with the scene, and we understand the cup is used as imagery here, and the imagery of the cup he was about to drink from is a symbol of his crucifixion. So what's he doing? He's asking the Father to remove the suffering of the cross from him, if at all possible. But still, I want to ask this question. Why the imagery of drinking from a cup? We understand what he's talking about, the crucifixion, but why, why this imagery of a cup? Is he just using some arbitrary metaphor here? Is he being poetic in talking about the crucifixion, sort of like Shakespearean? Remove thy cup of suffering. Or is there something more to it, some deeper meaning behind the expression? Well, if we look through the Bible for help in answering that question, we'll find that the imagery of the cup is specifically used several times and in a couple different ways. The first way is as a symbol of God's blessing, such as in Psalm 23. This is what it says in Psalm 23, verses 5 and 6. Psalm says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a cup of blessing that we see regularly in the Old Testament, but undoubtedly that's not the cup that Jesus has in mind here, right? Jesus would never say, Father, remove that cup from me, remove your blessing from me. There's got to be another explanation, and there is. There are about 15 Old Testament uses of the imagery of a very different cup, a very different cup, one that contains not blessing, but the wine of God's wrath. 
Here are a couple of examples. Isaiah 51, 17 says this. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Or Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of my wrath. This cup is symbolic of God's hatred for sin. His determination that sin must be punished. To drink from this cup is to drink from the outflow of God's judgment against you. That is not a cup you want to drink from. And there are many references to that cup in the Old Testament. But perhaps this third example that I'll give you from Psalm 75 is most helpful because it tells us exactly who this cup is for. Who drinks from this cup? Psalm 75, verse 78 says this, But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It's kind of ironic that a verse about wine could be called sobering, but this one surely is sobering. The language used in that verse is frightening. It's a heavy warning. God will judge the wicked people of the earth. In other words, the whole earth, the whole world. That means there is no one who will not be either lifted up or put down by his judgment. And for the wicked, and by wicked, I know that's kind of, a, kind of a, an outdated word in our modern usage, but that means anyone whose sins remain unatoned for and unforgiven, actively sinning against God, there is a cup, it says, of foaming wine. You ever seen wine foam? I'm not sure I have either. I had to look this up. Wine foams when it's agitated, apparently. It foams when it's shaken or aggressively poured from one vessel into another. And that's what the psalmist is telling us the wrath of God is like. Such is the, the wrath of God. It's not a wine that is sipped, but rather it is thrust down your throat. And the wicked will not cease to drink of this bottle of wine until they drink it down to the dregs. It's empty. It's the, the, whatever scrapes on the bottom of the bottle are absorbed. Like there's, there's not an ounce or a speck of the wrath of God that the wicked will not endure. That is utterly terrifying imagery. And it should be, because if we have even an inkling of the holiness of God, I mean, if we have an inkling of the holiness of God, and we have an inkling of an understanding of, our, of the ugliness of our own sin and, and, and our rebellion against him, we would realize we deserve a portion of this cup. I deserve a portion of that cup. God's wrath is reserved for the unrighteous, and we're told in Scripture, there is no one who is righteous. 
Not one, Romans 3.10. Not one, except for Jesus. He is the only human being who has ever lived on whom this cup has no claim whatsoever. He alone is the sinless one. He alone is the one who kept God's law and kept it perfectly. So when we look here in chapter 22 and we see him praying and we see the fear and the revulsion in his prayers and in his, the activities of his body at the prospect of drinking this cup, it's no wonder that this one who doesn't deserve it would pray, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. The thought of absorbing the wrath of God was so overwhelming, we're told here, that he was sweating drops of blood. That is a physically possible scenario when your body is shutting down due to severe stress and anguish. Luke tells us that he was in agony, verse 44. And Matthew's account, we're told that he pleaded repeatedly, three times for the Father to remove this cup and that he was sorrowful to the point of death. I think it's pretty hard for us to fathom that kind of fearful sorrow. But there's good reason for this fear because Jesus wasn't just facing a portion of this cup. He knew he was facing the whole bottle of foaming wine. He wasn't just about to bear the sins of one person. He was about to bear the sins of the entire world, and he would do that alone, and he would drink it down to the dregs. The wrath of God would be satisfied by placing its full force and weight upon the only person who didn't Deserve it. The righteous Son of God. 1 John 2 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The whole bottle drunk down to the dregs. By the way, propitiation means atone for. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a reconciliation that takes place. He is that atonement and reconciliation for all. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, he says. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The perfect, sinless, obedient son was obedient until the very end. And I want you to hear that because such is the love of Christ for sinners like you and me. Faced with that agony of bearing the wrath of God for your sin and my sin, he says, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Such is the love of Christ for sinners like you and me. He drank from this cup so you and I would not have to. Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He showed his love for us. 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the cup that Jesus anticipates drinking from in Luke chapter 22. And he will drink from it in just a few hours. So as we see this familiar scene again, we shouldn't minimize or overlook the fact that even for the perfect, sinless man, Jesus Christ, the weight of the wrath of God was so severe that it it required an angel to be sent from heaven to comfort him. How much more unbearable will that judgment be when it falls upon all of those who refuse to let Christ drink it for them? We need to ponder that. And we need to tremble at that. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1.18 The wrath of God is reserved. All who fail to trust in Christ for salvation and repentance and faith will drink from this cup too. And they will drink it on their own and they will drink it down to the dregs. That's the first cup that Luke points us to in this chapter. But there is yet another cup that we need to examine. And the second cup is this. It's the cup of God's mercy. The cup of God's mercy. Look back at verse 14. This is the scene in which Jesus celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples and institutes the Lord's Supper. Verse 14, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had been eating, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The second cup is the communion cup. We're told two significant things about this cup here. First, that it's initially offered as a part of the Last Supper, which was, again, a Passover meal. The second significant thing we're told here is that Jesus calls it the cup that is poured out for you as the new covenant, which is given in his blood. So I want to help you unpack that a little bit. Just as the Passover meal served as a sign of the previous covenant, 
That's why they were celebrating. They, this is something they did every year, remembering back to Exodus, where Christine read for us earlier, where the Lord delivered them out of Egypt. They remembered his passing over them by the blood of the lamb painted over their doorposts. That was a sign of a previous covenant that God had made with them. The communion cup now, Jesus says, represents a new covenant. So if we're going to understand that, we have to understand, well, what's a covenant? The idea of covenant here is key. What is it? What's a sign of a covenant? How does the Bible explain that to us? Well, I'm going to give you a brief explanation of this because we could spend a long time unpacking covenant. But one biblical scholar, I think, aptly puts it by saying a covenant is this, a sovereign administration of promises with corresponding obligations. Okay, Promises made with obligations. So in other words, when God makes a covenant promise to his people, he obligates himself to keep his end of the agreement. Now, we can look at covenants and see that there are obligations placed on us as well, right? But just bottom line, when God makes a covenant promise, he obligates himself to keep it. And these covenants are often accompanied by a sign. So, for example, the covenant of the promise made to Noah that God would never destroy the world again, there was a sign given of a rainbow, right? Or God made a covenant with Abraham, through you I will establish this nation this, that through whom the, the peoples of the whole world will be blessed. And the sign was given, the sign of circumcision and so on. We can see that on and on and on. Covenants made, signs given. The communion cup, along with the ongoing command that Jesus says here, do this in remembrance of me, is now a sign of this new covenant. That's why there's broken bread and wine in front of me this morning. We will take this together. We've been doing that for 2,000 years as a church, right? The sign of this new covenant. But what is the new covenant? What does it entail? Well, the fact that there's a new covenant, again, points to the existence of old covenants. What were the old covenants all about? Again, Without going into huge detail on this, we could boil it down to this. All of the old covenants, in other words, all of the Old Testament promises, carried with them the promise of deliverance, the promise of salvation from sin. God is always saving his people, right, and making promises to them that he would continue to do that. His old covenant promises, however, placed obligations on them. What were the obligations that God placed on his old covenant people? In the Old Testament, it was, here's my law, keep my law, right? What did they do? They failed to do that continually, continually. That's the whole story of the Old Testament, right? God promises salvation, places an obligation on his people that they can't meet. And so he he continues to point them to a day when it will be met for them. Now, their sin, their failure to meet this obligation demanded a death sentence. The penalty of sin is death. So animal sacrifices were provided. They were needed in order to atone for the sins of the people. That's, again, the story of the Old Testament. But there's a promise made of a new covenant to come. That promise is found in Jeremiah chapter 31. God tells him a day's coming 
when all that's going to change, this ongoing pattern of failure and animal sacrifice to atone for your sin, it's going to change. What does he say? Jeremiah 31. I think I have this on the screen for you, but if not, listen carefully. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will, listen, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The only way that God could remember their sin no more would be if there was an atoning sacrifice that was final, that was lasting, unlike the animal sacrifices that they were used to. For Jesus to initiate this new covenant at the Passover meal was hugely symbolic. Remember, this meal was, again, another sign of the Old Covenant. The Passover commemorated God's deliverance of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. God says, I'm going to punish the wickedness of the sin of Egypt, and the only way that that punishment can be averted is by taking a spotless lamb whose blood would be painted over the doorposts of the houses of the Israelites as a blood covering so that the angel of death, this executioner of God's judgment, would pass over their house and they would be spared. Sees the blood covering, passes over their house. They were saved by the blood sacrifice of the lamb. So here's Jesus at the Last Supper table saying this new covenant is the fulfillment, the final and lasting fulfillment of this sign through my blood. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The blood of Jesus accomplished what the blood of animals could never do. His atoning sacrifice for the people would be sufficient and it would be lasting. It would never need to be repeated. And that's how God could remember their sin no more. So this second cup, this communion cup in Luke chapter 22 is a cup of mercy stands in stark contrast to the cup of wrath is a cup of mercy to drink from this cup is to identify with christ and to proclaim over and over again every time that we drink from this cup that the wrath of god reserved for me the wrath of god reserved for us has been fully satisfied in the death of his son he drank the cup of wrath, so we wouldn't have to.
So to drink from this cup, this cup of mercy, is to believe that Jesus is the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And it is to believe that I am coming under his, the covering of his blood so that the judgment of God on my sin would pass over me because the wrath of God has fallen on him instead of me. It's to believe that. It's a, it's a proclamation of faith every time I drink this cup. Ours to drink if we trust in Christ is a cup of mercy. Yes, we drink from it physically. It's a symbol of that new covenant. But we, we drink it truly, spiritually. We enter into that covenant spiritually by faith. If I trust by faith in the atoning sacrifice of the Lamb of God for me, God remembers my sin no more. And if I understand that, and I can proclaim that, I have but one thing I can say, and that is, praise God. Hallelujah. God remembers my sin no more. The love of Christ, again, fully on display. Look at what he says here again in verse 22. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I've earnestly desired this. This is what he longed to do. This is what he came to do. He came to die for his friends so that we could live. He came to die for his friends so we could be forgiven and free, that we could be in his kingdom forever. John 15 says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. We are his friends if we see him for who he is, the son of God, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world and we, by faith, trust in him. Two cups. Here's your, here's your application. There are two cups. Every one of us will drink from one of these two cups. The cup of wrath or the cup of mercy. Which one will you drink from? To drink from the cup of mercy, again, is to know that Jesus drank the cup of wrath for you. So we're about to come and take from this table this sign and symbol of this new covenant. Yes, worship team, you guys can come up. I want you to just maybe close your eyes. Just take some time. I want you to think about this. We're to ponder this. If you are a believer this morning, you've trusted in Christ. You believe him to be that lamb who's taken away your sin. Your call is to come and to take and remember him. To eat of his broken body, to drink of his blood poured out for you and to do that proclaiming yet again over yourself and proclaiming before the church that you trust him by faith that you identify with this that this cup represents the cup of wrath that he drunk for you and maybe you're a believer this morning and you're 
feeling uncertain or unworthy to come to this table. We look at 1 Corinthians 11, we see the Apostle Paul warning the Corinthian church, do not take this table in an unworthy manner. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that if, if we understand what this table represents, the wrath of God placed on Christ instead of me, then we, we would come in humility. We would come in thanksgiving. We would come in worship. We wouldn't come flippantly. We wouldn't come uh, dismissively. We wouldn't come with, with unconfessed sin and just sort of say, yeah, whatever, right? We would be humbled that Jesus drank my portion for me. Paul warns against the flippancy of coming in an unworthy manner, but he does not warn against is you feeling like you have to earn it. Because Jesus paid your debt and earned your righteousness for you. This is a declaration that you couldn't do it on your own. You needed him to do that. You may be weak in the faith, but if your hope is solidly on Christ, this table is a reminder to you of what he's done. Don't neglect to take it. Drink and eat in remembrance of the gospel. Finally, if you're not a believer this morning, this table is clearly not for you, but it's still a sign to you. It is a sign of God's saving work accomplished through his son. It is a reminder that there is a cup of wrath. And either Jesus drinks it for you or you will drink it on your own. There is an evangelistic call in this table to turn to Christ and trust in him. It's a warning to you, but it's also an invitation. So if you're not a believer this morning, don't come and take from this table. You have no portion of it. However, if by faith the Spirit is leading you to say, I need this salvation, then trust him, come and remember what he's done. This team is going to begin to play a communion hymn. While they're playing, I would just invite you to, when you're ready, you need to take some time and just pray before the Lord. Do that, but then come. Take the elements back to your seat. And at the end of the song, after we've sung it together, we'll take communion together.